Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Nicola, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, Sam. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'm very happy that we have finally connected. We have been trying to get this conversation going for a while now. So I'm also really interested in digging into differential privacy, which is, uh, I think, in a, an area of very interesting promise uh, with regards to machine learning and AI and the intersection with privacy. Uh, but before we jump into that, why don't we take a few minutes and have you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us how you got involved in machine learning and AI? For sure. Yeah. So I, I joined Penn State about four years ago, just coming in from uh, France, uh, where I'm, I'm from, uh, after finishing up my, my undergrad. Um, and I joined this uh, lab here at Penn State, headed by uh, Professor Patrick McDaniel, uh, who is a security researcher. And at that time, it had been very recently demonstrated that uh, state-of-the-art uh, vision models were vulnerable to small perturbations of their inputs, uh, which researchers called adversarial examples. Um, and so that, that was something very interesting to us because from the machine learning perspective, adversarial examples have a lot of implications because they, they mean that uh, models don't generalize as well as we expected them. Um, and at that point in about 2014, uh, machine learning models were starting to get pretty good sometimes uh, outperforming humans at some, some of the tasks. And so it was already a surprising fact from the machine learning perspective that models are so susceptible to these small perturbations. But for us, from the security perspective, the implications were much more uh, serious uh, and that, that sort of attracted my interest in, in machine learning, uh, especially when you see applications to transportation, to uh, the energy sector with machine learning being able to uh, sort of optimize some of the decision making that's traditionally done by humans or with healthcare, uh, all of these domains, uh, it, it is clear that machine learning is being applied more and more widely in these critical applications. And so as, as a security researcher, when the technology becomes uh, so pervasive, uh, you, of course, consider all the potential implications as it becomes a target for adversaries um, and, and try to envision how adversaries will try to manipulate these systems. And so adversarial examples uh, were sort of the first threat vector that I've considered against machine learning. Uh, and, and, and from there branched a lot of interests more widely with anything related to machine learning and including uh, a little later, a few, about two years later in differential privacy. All right. Awesome. Maybe a, a great place to start is for you to talk a little bit about differential privacy, what it means and what some of the objectives are. So differential privacy is essentially a framework for understanding where the privacy information may leak in, in algorithms. And it's also a framework for preventing this information from uh, leaking from the algorithms manipulating the data. So at a very high level, you can think of differential privacy as 
defining two worlds. So you have uh, assumed that your application is collecting data about a particular population. Uh, and so you would have two worlds, one world where uh, you would have all of the people in the population and a second world where you would have just one person missing uh, from this population. And so what differential privacy requires is that this the algorithm that you're going to run on the data uh, should not have a statistically different behavior whether you are in the first world or in the second world. And what that means for all of the users uh, in the population that you're learning from is that the behavior of the algorithm is not going to reflect any specific information about a particular user, but rather it's going to only uh, reflect general patterns that are found across the population. And so this is why differential privacy has uh, become one of the gold standards in, in privacy and probably the most widely uh, applied. It's because this definition does not make any assumptions about the adversary. So, so essentially, that, that means that regardless of the knowledge that the adversary has, regardless of what attack techniques the adversary will think of, uh, the uh, guarantee that you have provided that the behavior of the model uh, does not overfit to specific people in, in, in the population uh, will, will stand uh, in the future. Uh, and so uh, differential privacy has been applied to, to many, many algorithms. Uh, for instance, uh, it, it was applied to uh, databases uh, to answer queries from SQL databases uh, while protecting privacy. And more recently, it has been applied a lot uh, to machine learning uh, and especially uh, deep learning in the last couple of years. And there, there's, there's a really natural, I would say, synergy uh, between machine learning and differential privacy. Um, and the way I like to, to think about it is that differential privacy is a way to give a cost to put in a value on some of the failures that uh, machine learning may have. So when you think about it, overfitting to a particular training point is likely to uh, violate privacy. So if you memorize the information uh, about a particular training point that you have in your set, uh, then whoever contributed this training point may not be able to, to retain its privacy uh, because the model will, uh, the model's behavior will very likely uh, be largely influenced by by this specific training point. And so, with differential privacy, you're essentially saying during the learning process, uh, if you overfit to this particular point, you will have to pay this particular amount of privacy. And so, you have this this connection between uh, privacy and achieving generalization, where in a way, privacy is a worst case guarantee and generalization is more of a mean average case metric. But when you have privacy, you are helping the model in a way to behave better. Does it apply equally well across different types of models and algorithms, meaning traditional uh, machine learning algorithms you know, relative to deep learning algorithms and neural networks? Yeah, differential privacy has has been applied uh, to all sorts of machine learning models. 
uh, starting with very simple things uh, like logistic regression and all the way uh, to, to deep learning more recently. What, what happens is that you can make most algorithms differentially private by randomizing their behavior. So for instance, uh, if you're learning a, a neural network, you have several ways that you, you can introduce, you can guarantee that you're providing differential privacy. You can perturb the inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you have a data set, you can uh, randomly flip some of the labels, uh, randomly perturb some of the inputs uh, in a way that would provide differential privacy. You can also perturb the uh, model's parameters. Uh, so that would imply, for instance, when you're applying stochastic gradient descent to learn a model, uh, you would uh, take the gradients of the model to, with respect to uh, using the training data, and you would add some noise to these gradients before applying them. And that would result in, in a model whose parameters provide differential privacy. And then you have a third way of achieving differential privacy, which is by perturbing the output of the model itself. And so essentially, you can adapt all learning algorithms to introduce privacy by randomizing either their input, the model itself, or their output. Um, and the question is whether you can calibrate this uh, random behavior uh, to be able to provide, on, on one hand, a strong privacy guarantee. So that requires that you analyze, uh, in the worst case settings, how the training data will influence uh, your predictions. And uh, on the other hand, uh, so if, if you once once you have this guarantee of privacy, you also want to make sure that the model uh, is going to perform well. So you want to calibrate the noise so that it is large enough to protect the privacy of the training data, but also small enough that it will not harm your performance. And I guess what what has been very exciting in the I would say the last year or two is that we are seeing uh, different scenarios where we can calibrate the noise in a way that it doesn't harm the performance. And actually, it, providing privacy can allow us to also achieve at the same time very strong performance. And again, the, it is because there is this uh, synergy uh, that you can exploit between uh, privacy and utility. Uh, if you think about it, if if a model is making a prediction that is very likely to be correct, uh, it means that this prediction is supported by uh, patterns found uh, in the training data that are uh, patterns that are widely found in this training data. Right. Uh, and so it also means that this prediction does not depend on specific points in the training set. And uh, as a consequence, uh, you can provide strong privacy for that prediction. Um, and so, yeah, this is something that I'm very excited about because uh, that would mean that we would be able to switch from a setting where privacy is often presented as, as something that you need to trade off with uh, utility to a setting where you can achieve privacy uh, with very limited or uh, no impact on performance. So I would say we're sort of in between these two right mm-hmm. now. We're, for most algorithms, we're still in the first scenario where we have to trade off some utility uh, to get privacy, but Worse, in some cases, we are moving to the second scenario, uh, and that's that's extremely exciting for the field because it means that 
differential privacy would be more likely to be applied uh, in all, all sorts of algorithms. Right, right. And so just to to capture that last point, the idea there is that t- traditionally we've got this trade-off between uh, model generalization and overfitting uh, and creating models that overfit is one of the uh, one of the biggest challenges in uh, employing these models, you know, beyond the training data and against real world data, but differential privacy, because its goal is, you know, highly aligned with generalization. It also serves to kind of fend off overfitting. Right. So, so just to be clear uh, again, generalization and privacy are different, different things. So generalization is, uh, a metric that looks at the average performance and privacy is a metric that looks at the worst case performance. So you you do have this direction where when you achieve privacy, you help towards generalization, but the other way around uh, doesn't hold. So if you have generalization, that doesn't guarantee privacy because again, privacy is a worst case uh, setting. But mm-hmm. it is true that providing privacy is uh, eventually one direction for improving the generalization of, of learning algorithms. That is definitely true. Okay. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about uh, your specific research in this area? Do you have any recent papers on this that we can maybe talk a little bit about? Yeah. So my research in, in differential privacy and machine learning has uh, focused on a particular approach, uh, which is called uh, PATE. So the name is French, uh, even though it's hard to believe I didn't come up with the name on my own. Uh, <laughs> but it stands for private. <laughs> it stands for uh, private aggregation of teacher ensembles. Okay. And so the the idea for for this approach is that we'd like to achieve privacy uh, and a rigorous form of privacy, so differential privacy, but also at the same time be able to explain why we achieve this privacy in a very intuitive uh, way. And, and the idea is that rather than having this uh, mysterious guarantee that you, you provide the privacy, you're able to, to, to convey an intuition why the approach protects the, the privacy of the training data. That, that is very useful uh, because, again, differential privacy often comes with its uh, set of theorems you need to, to prove things in a language that's necess- not necessarily easy to understand for, for a lot of pe- people unless they have lots of experience in that area. So, so basically, the approach looks at the training data and begins by partitioning the training data. Uh, so if you have one set of data, you'll, you'll create n partitions from this set of data. And, and the only constraint is that these have to be real partitions so that there is no overlap uh, between the, the subsets of data. And so from each of these subsets, what you do then is that you learn a machine learning model independently on each of these subsets. And the nice thing is that you can learn these models using any learning uh, algorithm. So if you want to use a decision tree, if you want to use logistic regression or even deep learning, that's, that's okay. And so at this stage, you have learned n different models on your training data in a completely independent way. So the models are looking at different subsets of the training data. And when they all make a prediction on a particular input, if they all agree on this prediction, you know that 
this prediction was made from a pattern that is general across the data and not about uh, a specific partition of the data. And so this, this is where the intuitive privacy guarantee comes from uh, because, again, when we ask all of these models, and we call these models teachers, so when we ask all of the teachers to make a prediction, if 95% of them all make the same prediction, uh, we know that this, this is a prediction that results from uh, a general pattern from the data. And so if we take as uh, the common answer uh, of the teachers the prediction that is assigned uh, the most number of votes, so the one that uh, the majority vote among the outputs of the teachers, uh, then we have this intuitive privacy guarantee that, uh, again, this is a prediction that results from a consensus. Uh, the question now is how do we add uh, noise to this to this mechanism in order to be able to prove that it provides a rigorous guarantee in the sense that it provides differential privacy. And so what happens there is that you introduce random noise at the outputs of the teacher. So you, you randomly um, perturb uh, a subset of the labels predicted by the teachers. And then afterwards, you take the uh, you make the aggregation. So, so what this means is that the aggregation is not performed on the true votes of the teachers, but on the randomized votes of the teachers. And using the uh, noise and by calibrating this noise according to the privacy guarantee strength that we want to achieve, then we are able to to guarantee that essentially every time the teachers make a prediction. Um, this prediction is made with uh, a certain level of uh, privacy. And so in, in privacy, in differential privacy, uh, there is a particular uh, parameter called epsilon, uh, which essentially uh, measures how indistinguishable the two worlds that I mentioned earlier are. Um, and so the smaller the value of epsilon is, the stronger the privacy guarantee is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and essentially, uh, using this mechanism, we can provide a specific epsilon value uh, for each of the queries that we uh, make to the teachers. So then we have, we have another step in the approach, because at this point, every time the teachers respond, they are going to reveal very little private information, but over time, this private information is going to accumulate. And uh, so you would have to bound to fix the number of queries that the teachers answer. And so what we do is that we use the teachers uh, to supervise the training of an additional model called the student model. And so this student model is going to learn from the teachers uh, by sending them uh, unlabeled inputs and training on the uh, private label that the teachers are returning as an aggregate. Um, and so essentially what this does is that it transfers the knowledge that the ensemble of teachers learned from the sensitive data in a privacy-preserving way into the student model. And so once the student model is trained and we only need a fixed number of labels to train the student, we can release the student uh, as the model that makes predictions. And that student model can answer as many predictions as 
we want, the cost in terms of privacy is fixed. Um, and what that means as well is that if an adversary uh, tries to inspect the, the parameters of the student model or to look at the predictions of the student model, in the worst case, what it can recover is the uh, private labels that the student learned from, uh, that it received from the teachers. And because we provided these labels of differential privacy, we can uh, guarantee that there will be uh, no more private, private privacy leakage than what is allowed by the guarantee that we were able to prove uh, mathematically. And, and so once we have this student, this is essentially the, the end product. This is what we want to uh, release, uh, to deploy uh, in our application. And then we can also simply just discard all of the teachers, all of the training data. We don't need it anymore uh, to, to use the student. And so that's, that's the, the, the approach that we've been working on. And uh, this this is this is where sort of the idea of having a synergy between privacy and utility came, and uh, that I was describing earlier in mm -hmm. our conversation, is that you can see here clearly that the the utility of a label is reflected by the number of teachers that agree on that uh, prediction. So when you have lots of teachers, almost all of them agree on the prediction, it's very likely to be a correct prediction. And because they all agree, that means that you can perturb their answers a lot. You can introduce lots of random noise and still provide, uh, and that will result in a very strong privacy guarantee. And so that's, that's how we're able to make the synergy between privacy and utility uh, explicit with, with the Pate approach. Uh, and and that's 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 extremely exciting, uh, and we've tested it on on a few on a few data sets, and it really gives you some 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 very high uh, utility uh, at very strong privacy uh, guarantees. So I'm I'm very excited to see where we can push that technique uh, in the future. Uh, you may have just answered uh, one of the questions that I had, but. To kind of take a step back, you've got this three-step approach to creating privacy guarantees using this uh, this model, uh, this approach. One is the first is you partition the data set and you train an ensemble of these teacher models, and you know these can these can be mixed models, so they don't have to be uniform. You then use the predictions of these teacher models in kind of a consensus manner to determine uh, the an intermediate prediction, uh, which is then used to train a student. The student model that you're creating is kind of your ultimate model that you deploy. And because of the process that you have gone through, it is there are some some privacy guarantees uh, that you have made around the student, and it's also uh, impervious to long-term data leakage. Is that correct in a nutshell? Uh, right. Before I go into my questions, yeah, that, that, that that's exactly it. Okay. So one question that I had was at the 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 second step where you're perturbing the outputs of your teacher models. Uh, would you say that that perturbation increases the 
privacy that is attained or is it simply required to make the privacy guarantees? Does that question make sense? It, it makes a lot of sense. It is required that you perturb the, the output of the teachers. It is not possible to achieve uh, differential privacy without introducing some randomness in the algorithm's behavior uh, at some point. Uh, and, and that's because differential privacy, basically, if, if you don't have this randomness, you would not be able to uh, learn anything meaningful because the, the definition would prevent you from learning anything uh, from any point. Uh, and so this this randomness is what oh, can you elaborate you, on that? The de- meaning the definition of differential privacy, right? Because or, uh, if if you want to have this guarantee that the behavior of the algorithm uh, is uh, is identical on the two worlds, this this guarantee has to be statistical. It has to uh, if if it were deterministic, you would not be able to learn anything because the the, the algorithm could not learn anything from any of the training points. And so that's why you have this randomness uh, because it introduces this ambiguity when the adversary sees the same prediction or a different prediction from the algorithm. It is not able to know whether that change in the prediction resulted from a change in the training data or a change in uh, the outcome of the random noise that was uh, sampled. Right. And, and so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking uh more is maybe like a, a hair splitting or semantic kind of question, but I'm really uh, asking it as a path to to truly understand what's happening here at the you know the goal is you could argue that the goal is privacy as opposed to differential privacy right differential privacy provides a guarantee of privacy, but what I ultimately want is is privacy and what I'm trying to get at is if we didn't do steps two and three, it strikes me that there's an argument that we've already, you know, created some degree of privacy just by doing the partitioning of the data and this uh, kind of ensemble consensus approach. And uh, I'm wondering if that is in fact the case or, you know, is it perhaps the case that no, not really, we haven't even achieved any measure of privacy with doing that or it's very little. Is there anything that you can say about the degree of privacy that we've achieved just in that first step, as opposed to, you know, the differential privacy specific pieces that the second and third steps add. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're, you're basically coming at one of the design goals of, of this approach is, is that uh, we want to be able to provide an intuitive notion of privacy. In addition to providing this rigorous definition uh, of differential privacy and so you are right that if we only perform the ensembling and, and outputting the aggregate answer of, of this ensemble, that would provide some notion of privacy uh, that is not differential privacy, but you could perceive it as, as a form of privacy. And, and that really drives at the fact that privacy is an extremely subjective notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so different people will have different expectations uh, in terms of privacy, but it is true that the the approach, even if you don't add noise or train the student, provides you with this intuitive definition of privacy. However, I, I want to be careful with that because I would say that our intuition uh, when we design algorithms to provide privacy is 
very very often uh, wrong, and it's it's hard to capture all of the ways which could result in a privacy leakage. Um, Is and, there an and example just, that comes to mind yeah. of uh, how the the ensemble approach alone doesn't create the kind of privacy that we want? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example with the ensemble, and then uh, with with a completely different uh, application. Okay. Uh, with the the ensemble, uh, let's let's assume that you're making a you're sending a query to to the ensemble, and exactly half of the teachers assign the label cat, and half of the teachers assign the label dog. Mm-hmm. Um, if you then change the training data of, of one of the teachers, which the adversary could do. Um, mm-hmm. And you run the same same algorithm, so you train the teachers and answer the same prediction. Then, because you change the training data of one of the teachers, in the worst case, you should assume uh, that that teacher will change its prediction. And so, in cases where you have exactly the same number of votes uh, for two classes, changing the predictions of one teacher might change the outcome of the aggregation uh, because it might make one class more likely than the other or just uh, invert the, the the order of the classes. So so essentially, if you don't have this noise, the prediction of the ensemble can depend on the predictions of a single teacher. Uh, and so you don't have this, this consensus uh, part where you have this large overwhelming consensus among the different models, uh, which provide you this intuitive notion that uh, you're having a very large uh, agreement that reflects the fact that the pattern is general across the training data. And so that's why the noise provides uh, privacy because it makes these scenarios ambiguous and prevents the adversary from understanding whether uh, the change in the prediction results from the change in the training data or from the noise. Another example of to, to sort of motivate differential privacy is that there, there are lots of ways that you can achieve intuitive notions of privacy. And one very common way is to anonymize the data. So to remove any part of the data that could be used to infer the identity of uh, the people who contributed this data. Um, and, and this has happened in the, in the past. So there was a data set which was released by Netflix where they had anonymized the data, which was essentially ratings for movies uh, and ratings from a, a large pool of users. And so they, they removed all of what they thought would be something useful to infer the identity of uh, the the persons who assigned these ratings. Uh, but then some researchers found later that if they perform what is called a linkage attack, so they use a second database, uh, which in this case was the IMDB database, mm-hmm. to uh, sort of cross the uh, records from the Netflix database with the records from the IMDB database because the uh, ratings were unique enough uh, in both databases, they were able to uh, 
link the records from the Netflix database to the records from the IMDb database, which is public. And so they were able to recover the identity of, of a lot of users in, in the Netflix database, which was supposed to be anonymous. Um, and so that's just an example of uh, why providing this these notions of privacy that are intuitive is a good start, uh, but it's not enough uh, to to claim to claim success. And I'm not saying that we should not be anonymizing the data. It, it is a good practice mm-hmm. to anonymize the data, but we shouldn't rely on it as uh, the ultimate way uh, to provide privacy. And so what is nice, again, about differential privacy is that the definition is robust to all these attacks that use auxiliary information, like like was the case with the IMDB database. Uh, anonymization did not take into account that the adversary would have access to this public information, which uh, helps mount the attack. And so with differential privacy, you don't have this problem. So the adversary can uh, have all this knowledge. It's not going to impact uh, the strength of your guarantee. Uh, and so it makes it it makes it a, a the definition is constraining in the sense that the analysis that you have to perform is extremely worst case. It's it's very constraining. But once you've managed to provide differential privacy, uh, you're really uh, providing a guarantee that is robust in the face of a lot of future attacks that people may come up with. Can you elaborate on how differential privacy specifically applies in the case of this Netflix example you gave? Uh, In particular, the differential privacy we've talked about thus far has to deal with a, uh, a model that I've created on some training data set and the, the kind of result or product of this differential privacy process is a, you know, call it a privacy robust model. In the case of the Netflix example you described, what Netflix provided that, you know, potentially got them into trouble uh, was the this data set, even though it was somewhat randomized. Um, is there a way that, how does differential privacy play here? Could differential privacy have been used to uh, create a better anonymized data set for them to share? Uh, or is differential privacy not applicable if you need to actually share your your training data? Uh, that's that's a very good question. So as, as I mentioned before, there, there are really three places where you can think of uh, providing the privacy. It's at the input of the algorithm, in the algorithm, and at the output of the algorithm. Mm-hmm. So there's there's several techniques to to provide uh, differential privacy at the input. Uh, one of the techniques that is easiest to uh, to get an intuition for uh, is called uh, local differential privacy, uh, where the idea is that you're going to uh, perturb the, the data itself. And so one easy example to think about it is, uh, let's assume you're collecting uh, data from a pool of users um, and so you're going to ask each of these users uh, to flip a coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on uh, the outcome of that coin flip, they will do, if, if it's heads, they, they will respond with the true answer to 
the uh, to your question. And if it's tails, they'll respond with a completely random answer. Mm -hmm. And so if you do this across a pool of a very large pool of users, uh, because you know with what probability people will respond with uh, the random answer or with the correct answer, you can still collect data that will be useful for you uh, to extract statistics or to, to perform an analysis on. Uh, but each user that participated in this process can still uh, have what is called plausible de deniability that they did not provide the correct answer. Um, so if you ask any particular user, they could just tell you, I, I responded the random answer and you have no way to verify that uh, because you don't have access to uh, the coin flip that outcome that they had. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's that's a particular way where you can collect data from from users uh, and uh, achieve uh, differential privacy uh, without uh, training a model on top of, of that data first. Meaning so Netflix and providing this data set uh, in addition to uh, eliminating any personally identifiable information, they could have also randomized um, some number of the labels on the data set. And it sounds like doing so in such a way that didn't inherently change the statistics of the data set. Right. And yeah, so for instance, they, yeah, they, they could have for each rating flipped a coin and depending on that, I'll put the real rating or a random rating mm -hmm. for just as an example. And if I'm building a model using this data and I, and I know that this is the case or I suspect that this is the case, uh, can I, can I take advantage of that? Uh, what do you mean by taking advantage of that? Meaning if I'm, you know, if I, if, if, you know, this is the Netflix prize and, you know, their Netflix has published this data set and I suspect that they've done this or they've told me that they've done this. Can I use that knowledge to increase the chance that I'll, you know, win the prize, but, you know, make my model, um, better performing. Uh, I don't think that would, the, having knowledge about the fact that they they collected the data in a privacy preserving way would provide you any, any advantage in the competition. But what it, what it does point out is is a very nice property of differential privacy is that once you've achieved differential privacy and you release statistics that are uh, resulting from this differentially private process, any post processing of the data. Uh, maintains the differential privacy. So once you've achieved differential privacy, you can analyze the data as, as much as you want. You can uh, train another model on the data and, and the, the guarantee is, is, is still provided. So it's, it, it holds in the face of post-processing, which is uh, another very, very nice uh, property of, of this definition. Okay. And so then just to, to take a step back and, and be clear, the, this, this coin flip, and substituting random data, is that uh, in and of itself enough to give me uh, a differential privacy guarantee for this data set? Yes. Oh, okay. um, so, so it's called local differential privacy. There are some variants of it uh, to, 
to improve the, the utility of, of uh, the process. But yes, in, in short, in, at a very high level, that, that is the idea that is uh, sufficient to provide differential privacy. Ah, great. Great. Okay. Awesome. And so then the, the, the third phase of the pate model that we talked about was training the student and the idea with the, with training the student model was that, um, it, the student basically is trained on this aggregate or ensemble parent model. And the idea is that it provide using the student provides you with, um, a further, a set of guarantees because the student never had any access to the underlying training data. Um, is that the right way to think about it? Or is there, I feel like I may be missing a nuance here. Yeah, it, it is mostly the, the right way to think about it. There, there are two components. Uh, so the, the one that you mentioned that it did not have access to the underlying data uh, provides uh, robustness to, to adversaries who would uh, attempt to, uh, to inspect the, the parameters of the model. Uh, the nice thing about training the student is is mostly that it uh, fixes the number of uh, questions and the number of predictions that the teachers uh, will answer. So if you could in, in practice, if you were able to guarantee that no one will be able to uh, ins- inspect the, the, t- the teacher's uh, parameters or to re- to extract the teacher models, you could use the the ensemble of teachers as sort of a differentially private API, uh, which would respond to user queries, and it would each query would be provided with a certain privacy guarantee. Uh, but again, over time, as you answer more and more and more queries, uh, you would accumulate uh, a, a privacy budget that would become unreasonable, uh, and eventually you would not be able to uh, provide any meaningful guarantee uh, with respect to your training data. And again, uh, if uh, as, as adversaries, and we're seeing this more and more, uh, where uh, attacks are able to extract uh, some of the training data or some of the parameters uh, of the model by only uh, having access to its predictions. So if that is also possible, then we have to be worried that uh, the adversary would be able to recover some information about the training data that the teachers had access to. And that's why training the student is very nice uh, because the student only has access to this uh, limited set of uh, labels from the teachers. Uh, We're able to to guarantee first that the overall budget that we spent uh, in terms of differential privacy is fixed. So once we've trained the student, we don't access uh, the teachers anymore. So we don't perform any computation that depends on the sensitive data. Um, and, and again, because the student was only trained on this, this private data, even if the adversary is very strong and able to recover the training data of the student, uh, that data is, is not the sensitive data that we uh, were protecting uh, so, so mm-hmm. we have this, this strong guarantee in this case as well. Okay. It sounds like a way to think about that is that we use the student for the same reason why your 
uh, your computer or your iPhone will start injecting delays if you get your password wrong for you know three times. It's to prevent someone from using a large number or infinite number of brute force attacks to you know attack the model or attack the password. Yeah, I guess that's 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 a way to think about it. Is that uh, once the adversary has access to to the, to the system and is able to make lots and lots of queries to it, so like in your example, trying to enter as many passwords to eventually figure out if that is the correct password, then yes, as the as the adversary makes a very large number of queries, uh, eventually it, it is able to infer some information about the system and. And so that's that's what the student protects against because it uh, disconnects the model that is predicting from uh, all of the teachers that were that had access to uh, to to this to this sensitive training data. Um, and and the, the the reason that it's it's not as easy as uh, preventing against someone using uh, your phone to to enter the password and eventually figuring it out is so in that case. You, you can introduce this delay and that makes the attack much more impractical. But often what happens is that machine learning models are uh, exposed through an API, through uh, online or, or, or in uh, a local network. Um, and so essentially you, you could envision that the adversary would distribute uh, its queries. And so that would make it very hard for the owner of the model to to know whether a particular sequence of queries is an attack trying to find information about the model, or if it's just a set of legitimate users who are actually using the model as intended. And so you have this point where after you hit the sweet spot, the the utility and the privacy of the model will, will start uh, degrading. Um, and so it's, it's hard to give numbers like guidelines for numbers, it really is a question of uh, both the complexity of your models, uh, which sort of indicates how much data you will need to train them, and also the complexity of the task, how many outputs there is in the task. Uh, and, and in our research, we've we've sort of uh, tried different applications, different models with smaller smaller tasks and tasks with hundreds of outputs. Um, and the number of teacher will vary, uh, in our case, between 100 and uh, 5,000. So you, so it, it really, it really depends. If you have the data to support more teachers, then that makes your life easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, the the nice thing is that you're able to use any machine learning model. So once you have a model that works uh, without privacy. If you have a lot of data, then you can sort of apply this framework uh, quite easily uh, by partitioning the data and just training your model uh, several times uh, on these on these different data sets. Um, so that's that's the nice advantage uh, about the approach. Okay, um, and I don't recall off the top of my head in, in the case of you know let's take the case of deep learning. You know, I don't recall what the, um, you know, if training time is, uh, you know, linear uh, in the, you know, linear, sublinear, superlinear in the number of training examples 
Uh, but I'm wondering if there, if you've done any work to look at like theoretical bounds on the relative training time using uh, a partitioned model versus a, uh, a a model trained on the entire data set. I'm sure other people have done this looking at it from a, you know, just the scalability perspective, but it seems like if there's some advantage there just from a, a scale perspective and now you're overlaying the privacy piece that's kind of further supports doing this. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point. So in, we haven't looked at the theoretical aspects of this of, of this trade-off, but in practice, what we found is obviously if, if you have the resources, you can, the, the you approach is by by definition very parallelizable. Mm-hmm. So you you can train all of the teachers simultaneously, uh, and so you you if if the resources are there, you don't see an overhead on. Uh, in terms of training time compared to just training one model. One thing is even if you have limited resources, because each model uh, gets less data uh, to train from, uh, it, it also tr- it also trains faster um, in, in general. Um, and, and so the, I would say the computational overhead is not uh, a main limitation. Uh, it, it just... It's it's kind of like the rest of deep learning. If you have lots of resources, it makes your life easier. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but in that case, because you're able to sort of prototype your model without privacy, and then once you're ready to, once your model is properly uh, fine tuned, and you you have all the right number of layers, right hyperparameters, you can sort of apply the pate approach. You you know what. What architecture you're going to go for, and so you just parallelize uh, the trading over all, all of the subsets of data, and so that's relatively straightforward. Is the uh, implication of what you just said that in practice you're going to want to design your model by training against the entire data set as you usually would, and then apply differential privacy as a kind of a step further? towards production as opposed to designing, you know, from the beginning with differential privacy in mind and in a, in a um, you know, such that you may never train against all of your data, uh, but always do this approach? Yeah. So it really depends what data you're handling and how sensitive it is. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm sure that in some cases it's just not possible to, to train uh, maybe for legal reasons on, on the whole entire data set if you're not able to provide privacy. Uh, but m- m- what I wanted to basically to say is that if you have uh, about the same amount of data that you would use uh, in a partition, then you can prototype your model and then replicate it over the other partitions. And so that that is a very easy and practical way to, to limit the overhead of uh, implementing the privacy because you only implement privacy once you have the model that you're confident with uh, that is a good fit for this this particular task. Yeah. Can you say that again? I don't think I followed it. Sure. So so, let, so let's say you're going to train uh, on uh, 50,000 inputs uh, and basically once you, you have 
you you can prototype your model on on a subset of the data uh and once you have a a good model then at at this point only you 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 have to replicate it over the different subsets of data uh to to train the ensemble and then uh, achieve the privacy but you can sort of do the prototyping for a single teacher uh before you train the entire ensemble i guess that that was my point mm, okay and so the then the the data sets that you train the teachers on they don't need to be uh it sounds like strict partitions of your data they can be overlapping no they they have to be non overlapping okay if 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 they are overlapping then uh this changes the way that you analyze the privacy guarantees uh because essentially when they are non overlapping changing one point of the training data uh, has will, input and impact on uh, multiple teachers, add, right? Right. So if you have overlaps, then you have to, if, if there is, for instance, a point in, in three partitions, changing that point would change three teachers in the worst case. Right. Uh, and so you have to take that into account in, in the privacy analysis. Um, so in, in our case, we always consider non-overlapping uh, partitions. And if, if you wanted to use uh, our approach and the the guarantees that come with it uh, out of the box, uh, you would have to to use non-overlapping partitions. You could adapt the privacy analysis to take into account the fact that the partitions are overlapping, but that would probably require uh, more work than uh, the benefit that you would you'd get mm-hmm. from having these overlapping partitions. Okay, okay. I thought the that what you were saying previously implied duplicating the data that the teacher sees or overlapping in some way? Oh, no. Well, I guess I, I may have uh, said something ambiguous. What I meant is that you 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 can perform sort of the parameter search of your model uh, for only one of the teachers uh, and then apply that search uh, to all of the other uh, models in the ensemble, you, which which reduces the amount of time uh, that you have to spend training the training the models uh, uh, because so in other words because, instead of training the 500 teachers you train one teacher and use the parameters for all 500 teachers so you use the hyperparameters like the the, the hyperparameters right the, the number of layers so once you found uh, an architecture that works well for this particular data got uh, it okay sorry about that uh, <laughs> um, no no that's sense. that's fine it's it's very subtle because even you have to take into account that all every time you use the the data uh, that is sensitive, you have to take that into account if you want to provide the the guarantee of of privacy of the overall approach. Uh, so it, it can be it can be very tricky. Okay. Any parting words or thoughts on what's next for you in this line of research? Uh, sure. So. I, I'm extremely excited about this uh, synergy between uh, privacy and, and utility again. Uh, I think that's that's really uh, a deal breaker. Um, and in terms of the next steps, I think the 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 most compelling would be to to apply these techniques to to uh, data sets that uh, that have traditionally been very hard to tackle with with privacy preserving techniques or to get good performance at uh, to sort of show the 
implications uh, of these techniques uh, to, to real-world applications. Uh, and there is also one thing that I'm interested in. Before, before we go at, there, what are some examples of those data sets that are traditionally difficult? I, I mean, there there's a lot of progress being made in healthcare, for instance. And obviously, these approaches to provide different for privacy uh, uh, are are good way to address some of the concerns that uh, users contributing these data sets may have. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are many, many, many examples, um, even, even in, in applications related to, to justice or uh, any, any, anywhere where the data is uh, sensitive and we're at the same time making progress with uh, applying neural networks or other more complicated uh, machine learning because differential privacy uh, used to used to be limited to to more uh, to more simple machine learning uh, techniques like logistic regression and and so now that we are able to provide differential privacy with uh, things like that deep neural networks it's very exciting uh, because that means we can look at tasks that are much more complicated uh, to solve and mm-hmm. that that means in turn in turn, that will have uh, a very beneficial impact on on society at large. Great. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through this. It is really interesting and uh, important work, and I'm looking forward to kind of tracking it as uh, as you and others in the space progress it. Yeah. Th- thank. Thanks a lot, Sam, for for having me. I really enjoyed our, our conversation around privacy. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Nicola or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 134. Thanks again to our friends at Georgian Partners for sponsoring this series. And be sure to visit their Differential Privacy Resource Center at gptrs.vc slash for more information on the field and what they're up to. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.